When the United States of America were first formed, there were 13 founding colonies. Today, the USA is comprised of 50 states and multiple other territories. So what does it take to become a state? And why is expansion so important? In this episode, we explore how colonialism created a blueprint for modern America as we answer the question, how did the 50 states become the 50 states? Welcome to America, a history podcast. I'm Liam Heffernan, and every week we answer a different question to understand the people, the places, and the events that make the USA what it is today. Joining me from the faculty today is Jacqueline Fear-Siegel, Professor of American and Indigenous Histories at the University of East Anglia, with an interest in the American West, immigration and Americanization. Jacqueline, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, And before we dive into this discussion, uh, do give our listeners a brief outline of of who you are and what you do. Well, I'm... Obviously, I, I research and teach American history generally and with an interest in the 19th and 20th centuries. And my research has more specifically been on indigenous Americans and their histories within the colonial period and the United States I, after contact. And my specific research area is boarding schools. That is the schools that were set up in an effort to Americanize Native American children. And of course, we are going to be talking in a later episode as well, specifically about um, Native American history. uh, And we'll have a couple of uh, very exciting guests joining us for that too. Um, But today, of course, is focused more on the sort of expansionism that sort of defined America and how America came to be. So the first thing I really wanted to touch on was this idea that we we tend to to use the terminology settlers. We we call people the early settlers who who sort of sailed west and landed in America. But are we just kind of glorifying the fact that they they were actually invaders because they they really did just take the land, didn't they? Well, yes, and I mean there is a book um, written by Francis Jennings called "The Invasion of America," which talks about from the indigenous point of view the arrival of all the settlers. But I think settlers is actually a very apt term because that's what they came to do. These were not just people like going out to India who were going to exploit the um, economic resources. These were people who were coming to stay. So the term settler colonialism is actually a very useful one for thinking about how the United States was settled because these were colonists who were coming to settle. And that meant they were going to stay, which that which meant, of course, they were in direct competition to take land from the indigenous people who've been living on it for thousands of years. So at what point did the settlers start to identify as a, a union, as a republic? Well, I think it was a slow process, but, but obviously it was triggered by the actions of the British in terms of taxing them and in terms of their general feeling of a need for independence and need to be able to determine their own futures and, of course, it all focused on the issue of no taxation without representation. And obviously people like Thomas Paine, who wrote his pamphlet Commonwealth, 
common sense, sorry, he wrote Thomas Paine's pamphlet, Common Sense, enabled people to have an intellectual understanding of exactly what they were feeling and why they were feeling and why they had a right to govern themselves. And the whole notion of a republic, obviously we're going to have the French coming through, but the notion that it should be the people who decided their government and not a king, particularly not a king that wasn't near them. So the whole notion of royal sovereignty and royal power was anathema to the colonists. And of course, specifically, when, when you say the people, you, you do mean the white people, which is a very important distinction. I do mean the white people. We, the people of the United States, you know, the, the beginning of the preamble to the Constitution, mm. well, it meant the white people. And actually, specifically at that time, it meant white male property owners, because mm. other people didn't have a vote. But you're absolutely right. Indigenous people were not included. They never envisaged that they would be included. And to be honest, they didn't want to be included. They had their own societies, their own cultures. And their goal was at that time and always has been to hold the colonists at bay, to hold the mainstream white Americans at bay and maintain their own land and their own cultures. So before we look in a bit more detail as to exactly how that land got seized and sort of that, that, that process of, of essentially evicting the indigenous people from their land. How exactly does a new state get admitted to the Union? Well, it, it's all laid down in the Constitution. And of course, at the very beginning, when I mean, we imagine this as a powerful nation, but when they were just the 13 colonies in rebellion, they were having to set up a system of government and not everybody joined in at the same rate. So in fact, they admitted two states and the terms of those states coming in then laid down a very good blueprint for how others would come in because they always came in on equal terms. One of the actual extraordinary things that the Americans did was they set up a nation that accommodated the possibility to allow other sections or states to come in on equal terms. And when I say equal terms, individuals had equal voting rights and each state came in with two senators and then a number of people in the House of Representatives who were proportionate to their population. So it was a very extraordinary equal way and they allowed in the constitution for this expansion. And there was a sense that America was this new land and, you know, as they moved west and as new states did become admitted to the Union, you know, it, it was it was treated like almost like a discovery. They were they were this sort of frontier, you know, but that really wasn't the case, was it? You know, it wasn't really new land at all. Not only did you have indigenous tribes who had been settled there for hundreds, if not thousands of years, but there were other European powers that already owned a lot of that land. So how did it come to be that America was able to purchase or in in, in many cases just take ownership of this land? Yes, well, you're right. I mean, the, the, the real things, the real enemies at the beginning are other European powers because, of course, you've got the French up on what's now Canada and you've got the Spanish and the huge Spanish empire down in what's known as South America now, but also in Florida. And so... In some ways, the the indigenous communities were seen as possible allies to fight these Europeans. So it was an extension of the European um, battles or the, the European struggles for power that was taking place in America. And it wasn't a foregone conclusion. Even after the um, Constitution had been written and the setting up of the United States, it still wasn't clear that they could actually 
um, get rid of these other European powers. The War of 1812 against the British was very important for that. It also, you know, that was warfare at one point and struggling with other European powers, but then also negotiation because the enormous sway in the middle of what we now know as the United States was bought. It was bought from the French, known as the Louisiana Purchase, and Napoleon sold it. So then the United States acquired a half of the continent. And so the possibility to expansion was extraordinary. And that's the, the populations, the white population slowly moved into those areas which were made into territories and then petitioned for statehood. When the population, you had to have a population of 60,000 for Congress to even consider that you could for you, you for statehood. And you also had to have various other things in in place. I mean, for example, the Mormons were excluded, were refused statehood for a while because um, because of polygamy. Interesting. And and of course, you know, America was founded on very Christian values, even though there is apparently a very clear separation between church and state, which, you know, that's a, that's a podcast for another day. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You know, you, you, you were speaking just then about, you know, going to war with... France and you know there were there were purchases of land from France and from Mexico and and all these deals done you didn't mention Native Americans you know they were living on this land did 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 they not get a say in any of this no they had had no say at all because in terms of the statecraft of America and European powers they weren't part of the conversation so these groups of people who had been living on this land were discounted. There was a very um, interesting development down in the south when what became known as the five civilised tribes, because they actually attempted to acculturate themselves into white ways. And they basically tried very hard to to become part of the United States, but on their own terms. It didn't succeed and they were removed. The five civilized tribes were on some very, very valuable land, especially in Georgia, cotton growing land. And they were removed into what was seen known as Indian Territory, and which then became Oklahoma Territory. But they petitioned later on in the 20th century, they petitioned to come into the United States as an Indian state, and they were refused. And that the, the Indian Territory became part of what is now Oklahoma State. So we can see that there are certain other um, narratives under the surface. That was obviously a racial narrative. They couldn't allow an Indian state to exist within the United States, despite the fact that they had already written a constitution and they had a, developed a written language. And, and was there any um, valid reason for denying their statehood or was it just blatant racism? Well, I suppose it's mostly racism, but, you know, there, there were constitutional arguments about why they couldn't 
and also there were a lot of land was owned by whites within what was going to be the state because they had allowed whites onto was indigenous lands holdings. So it was a complicated process, but nevertheless, the, the petition was the for, for statehood was turned down. Hmm. So as America was moving west, I, I guess there's this very simplistic idea that you start on the east, you work across, you get to California. Was it was it as linear as that? No, not at all, because partly because the area in the middle, which was um, where a lot of the um, Plains Indian tribes were, was not very easy to, be, to cultivate in traditional terms. The rainfall was low and the, um, there, was, there was lack of trees. So California, which obviously had ports and there were settlements from into California, also very, very rich, probably um, agriculture, the richest area in the United States, very dense in indigenous populations. And there was a lot of um, settlement there, but that was, of course, escalated dramatically by the gold rush. So that by the end of the 1840s, you had a, a very substantial white population living in California and committing terrible genocide against the indigenous populations. And so they petitioned for statehood. And California came into the Union in 1850, which meant we've got a continental nation growing here because we've bookended. We've got the 13 colonies in the east, we've got California in the west. So the um, progress or the uniting of this continental nation was obviously going to take place. And it seems very much like the the federal government was was complicit in this, this genocide of, of indigenous people. And it feels like the only real justification for it was money and land? Well, land is key. If you want to understand anything about Indigenous histories, it's land. And obviously, the federal government specifically encouraged the expansion of the white population onto these lands. They encouraged it very actively by things like the Homestead Act in 1862, by which people could go out and settle and if they lived in a certain area for a certain length of time, they could buy the land very cheaply. And things like the railroads, which were essential. If you were going to join up this continental nation, you needed the railroads. And the railroads were subsidised with Indian land. The federal government gave railroad companies, private railroad companies, a checkerboard area from a square mile on each side of the railroad stretching out in order to fund their investments. So by very obvious means the federal government was right behind the expansion into these areas and the federal government from the time of the writing of the constitution was also responsible for native americans all the tribes were under the federal government either under the war department or latterly under the department of the interior so they were if you like controlling what happened on in the territories where native Indians were. And then when they became subjugated, they wrote the terms of the treaties and they confined them on reservations to which the federal government sent agents. So the federal government was both in control of the expansion westward and in control of the indigenous populations that were being squeezed. But I should say the indigenous populations had had a terrible blow because the diseases that the white population brought from the very start essentially decimated the native populations, even as the settlement began. So they started off in a very depleted way when they had to confront 
white the, the arrival of white settlers. It really feels like it's a, a war of completely polar opposite value systems because the the Americans, specifically the white men who were leading America, could justify expansion and can justify what they were doing to Native Americans because they were building on the lands, they were they were creating economies, they were becoming richer. So I guess in their heads, they were making better use of the land than Native Americans were. So it's a tough one because obviously in hindsight, it's clearly a mistreatment of Native Americans, mm-hmm. but is there any way that we can kind of understand that mindset of Americans or was it purely just this is our land now, yoink, off you go. Was it? Well, uh, I think you're right. It was. It was a belief that they had a superior system of government, that, and that gradually unfolded into a kind of very biological, racial belief that they were superior peoples. But even before that biological racism developed, the super, the Republican government was seen as superior. You know, they, they, they were the model for the world, and the one man, one vote, etc. And so when people like Thomas Jefferson thought that they might include native peoples, their, his assumption was they could come in, they were, if they would just give up their, quote, savage ways, and then they could perhaps be part of the experiment. But the experiment was paramount, and the values of the American Constitution were paramount. And the rights of indigenous people, it's, they're written into the Declaration of Independence, as um, savages. They're called merciless Indian savages. That's the language used in the Declaration of Independence. So they were not seen as being part of this noble political experiment. And if they would drop their savage ways, they might have been deigned to be included. But first of all, they would then have suffered racism, but also they had no desire to be included until it became clear that they were basically in a terrible situation caught on reservations with declining population and everything else. They didn't want to be American citizens. They didn't want to be part of the experiment. And in fact, they didn't become American citizens until 1924. So they lived in this kind of fringe world. And we have to remember, although this was not a Catholic country, it was mostly a Protestant country, the Pope had said that white people, Europeans, owned this land by, quote, right of discovery. And that has just been rescinded by Pope Francis. So the right of discovery was a very driving force for Europeans. That's incredible because that that's basically ordaining people to just to literally come along and say, I've discovered this land now, so I have a right to it over the people that have been living on it. And I guess you could also argue that if people have been living on that land, how can it be discovered? Good question. <laughs> yes. Yes, and of course it became quite complicated when you started thinking about bringing in states like Hawaii, which had, quote, non-white peoples that you were going to include in your body politic if you brought them in. And that's one of the very strong issues around Puerto Rico nowadays. You know, Puerto Rico has, I think, the House of Representatives in December last year, in December 2022, um, gave them a right to hold a referendum which would be definitive about whether they would join the United States as a state, it's probably not going to be passed by the Senate because we know that coming into the United States, you have political rights. You have the right to have representation in um, the Senate and in Congress, but you also have the right 
to have money channeled your way. And it's meant that, that people have said that if Puerto Rico came in, it would cost something like $7 billion dollars the United States. And of course, it would deplete the number of representatives that other states had. So it was always a balance. When you're bringing states in, um, it's always a balancing act politically. Um, and then, of course, um, racially as well. You know, Do you want non-white people as part of your body politic? Yeah, and that seems to be a running theme that whether you're African-American, whether you're Native American, whether you're living in a territory, as long as you just comply with what the American government are telling you to do, then there won't be any trouble. And there's almost an expectation of of gratitude. You know, we're, we're letting you stay on this land, so you're welcome. <laughs> I think that's right. It is. You were supposed to be very grateful for what was being offered from American society, which was seen as being superior. And as you say, our point of view has changed a lot now in terms of who and what cultures we recognise and how we basically evaluate people's cultural systems and religions. Because the problem was they were seen as pagan. You know, you mentioned America was not formally a Christian society, but, you know, it's, it's formed under God. And if you've got a group of people that you're classifying as pagan, you've got a very different attitude to them. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When we look a little bit more recently, you mentioned Hawaii, but you know, Hawaii and Alaska are two of the more recent additions to the States. I mean, Hawaii famously is the, the most recent. Is there more at play for, for how they got their statehood? Is it more geopolitical or is there still just this old expansionist mindset at work? Well, it is obviously, I mean, just the acquisition of Alaska was geopolitical. Obviously, it was bought from the Russians in 1867. I've forgotten what the cost was. But the reason why the Russians sold it to the Americans was they thought that would be a kind of buffer against the British and then, so that's a geopolitical move. And then now, of course, it turns out that Alaska has a lot of natural resources, including oil. And so the obviously bought at a very cheap price. But also, it's not, you know, it, if we think about the map, Alaska does not abut the United States. It's above Canada. So it's a kind of strange acquisition. And yet, there it is, part of the United States. And... Um, with all the same rights politically, etc. But I suppose that one of the most long discussed areas for being at the 51st is, is of course, Washington DC. Just because they don't have congressional rights, they don't have congressional representation. And it's been mentioned from the start and it's always mentioned. So, you know, there's a group of people that live in Washington DC who don't have a representative in the Senate or in the House of Representatives. Yeah, and that's very similar to the territories, isn't it? Because uh, if, if I if I remember correctly, um, the territories they can't 
vote in the presidential election or or they don't have representation um in congress but they 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 basically they're kind of they're governed by america but they don't really have much input in what those rules are no they definitely have no representation in congress so they don't have they don't have people who are supporting them and speaking for them and representing their rights so it's a a complicated situation and it, it sort of begs the question really as to if there should be a 51st or 52nd or 53rd state, you know, why aren't the territories looking for statehood? Well, in Guam as well, I mean, the tiny little island in the Pacific, you know, it has a status that it could apply. So it's a a complicated thing, partly because it's always going to involve expense and also because it's going to change the political balance in both the houses as they will, you know, there has to be, you have to have two senators who've come in as a state and then you will get a share of the 435 representatives. Of course, yeah, and now, and, and as you mentioned before, it's then that that power struggle where everyone else has to cede a little portion of that overall um, hold they have on 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 Congress. And we saw the power struggle most ferociously in the middle of the nineteenth century, when before America abolished slavery, they didn't dare bring a state in from the slave states without bringing in a, a free state. They, in order to keep the balance in Congress, they had to have representatives equal from the free states and the slave states because the slave states felt as though their institution was under threat. So that's when, in some ways, the, the political balance was most dramatic when they when they were after the, they, they set up something called the Missouri Compromise in 1820 to keep this balance. And then when that balance fell apart, it then became much more difficult for the southern states to see that they could defend their institution politically in Congress rather than have to go to war. Yeah, and when you look at all of the issues that have arisen from the westward expansion, you know, you had racial issues and and, and slavery tearing the country apart in the 1800s. You, You always had issues with the treatment of Native Americans, but that's something that's, I guess, been more on the on the political agenda in the 20th century is it worth it for for what america have gotten out of it and for what america is today is expansionism worth it well they've built the richest nation in the world so from those of them who are on the inside of it and for all of those people clamoring to get in it obviously looks as though it was worth it and was it worth the countless lives that were taken in the process that's the question isn't it well and is it the, the the tricky question is what does it mean to have built your richest nation in the world on land that you have seized from other peoples because it's a story of dispossession and the sad thing is it's very hard for any american to openly acknowledge that non-native people because then you have to it puts a question mark over the, the existence of the whole state because you are always, when you're standing in the United States, you are always standing on native land. And of course, the federal government have tried to go some way to, for, for, for want of a nicer phrase, uh, trying to make themselves feel a bit better by you know, ring-fencing uh, land for Native Americans. But will there be anything that the federal government can do today that will go any way to compensate for how they treated Native Americans in the past? Well, first of all, you talk about ring-fencing land. It's always tiny little patches of land 
which were not wanted. And so it's very ironic, you know, that the Navajo live on the largest uranium deposits in the United States. The United States didn't know that when they put the Navajo in that area. So the, the ring-fenced land is not the desirable land. And obviously, to, the reclamation of land would be a very... It slowly has happened in some areas, you know. Under, the most interesting precedent from this point of view was President Nixon, who turned more land and Lake Taos and various things. But it's a very um, thorny problem for America because, as I say, the whole nation is, is native land. And I suppose the rights, education rights, benefit rights, those rights which were written into treaties, those are the things that need to be recognised and acknowledged. But otherwise, it's recognition of cultural values and recognition of health agreements that were signed into treaties. So basically coming forward on all the agreements that were made and the treaties that were signed and um, starting there, that would not be a bad place to start. But it is very difficult if you've built, if you've built your nation on somebody else's land. This episode of America, a history podcast, is produced and hosted by me, Liam Heffernan. A special thanks to our guest today, Jacqueline Fear Siegel. And if you want to learn more, uh, you can check out the resources that we've put in the show notes for you. Don't forget to listen, follow and share this podcast. And if you could leave us a review and a rating on Apple, that would be amazing. In the next episode, I'm joined by Emma Long as we take a closer look at nine of the most powerful people in America as we answer, what is the Supreme Court?